Welcome to You Never Walk Alone, Voices from the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. My name is Meredith Wade, and you're about to hear an interview between myself, Chaplain Rita Powell, and two very special guests who've helped us bring a chaplaincy dream to life. That's right, we're talking about the sacred tent. Last fall, Rita and I began talking with students about ways to make the space we worship in better suited to the needs of the chaplaincy. Out of these conversations, a vision for a liturgical tent was born. We imagined something we could set up and take down, something that was layered with theological and aesthetic meaning, something that we could use for outdoor worship or take on the road to protests or host performances in. This project has taken on greater urgency in light of COVID-19. We can't gather in a church, but an ephemeral outdoor structure could provide an anchor for contemplation and distance worship. This coming Sunday, October 4th, Bishop Alan Gates will consecrate the tent. You can follow us on Facebook to catch the live stream. Until then, let's hear from some of the folks who've brought this tent into being. My name is Matthew Jen. I'm a historian of architecture. Um, I recently completed my PhD at Harvard and um, I came to this project by way of my dissertation research, which uh, examined the temporary structures that were built for festivals um, in France uh, during the 18th century and trying to understand these temporary things made of wood and paper mache, um, how they functioned as platforms for the performance, not just of uh, rituals, but of different kinds of political and social and economic and artistic relationships. And um, I'm familiar with Rita from her previous calling at Trinity, where we've actually kind of long been in conversation about um, architecture and space and temporariness. And so uh, Rita approached me back uh, in February of last year, I believe, and, and we began talking really seriously about what it would mean to build for the chaplaincy uh, a new kind of worship space, uh, one that was uh, momentary and ephemeral and um, looked to uh, a new way of approaching spaces of, of ritual. So this is both personal and and professional for for me yeah as i recall the whole the story of this whole thing in my mind you know the first part of the story was uh negotiating a kind of experience of alienation in the in the space in our worship space at christ church which is uh you know is, is a fine and lovely and, and wonderful and rich space on its own but which we were experiencing a kind of alienation from and when thinking about how to intervene in that space, um, Matt was maybe the first person that I <laughs> thought of, somebody who works on ephemeral architecture. But another way to think about what it's like to be alienated from a space is thinking more broadly about ways in which um, the church can be alienating and some of that being the church structure directly, but also some of that being more the church as the church. And that's where Charlie comes hey. in. <laughs> Alienation <from> church. <laughs> <laughs> right, so my name's Charlie Stang. Um, I too know Rita from her Trinity days, but um, uh, well, I won't go too far into that. Mm -mm. No, uh, I, I, got, <laughs> I got dragged into this project, not dragged, that sounds like I was resisting it. I got uh, pulled into this project um, because uh, Rita read something that I'd written about um, an Italian philosopher by the name of Giorgio Agamben and his reflections on uh, how the church has sort of failed in its messianic vocation to be um, a sojourner rather than a dweller. Um, and there are sort of 
biblical verses behind these different, uh, the, the idea that the church is supposed to sojourn or live in a kind of temporal exile in this world rather than dwell uh, as an empire or an institution would. And so he makes much of this and essentially suggests that insofar as the church has failed to live into this kind of um, temporality of sojourning, it has uh, failed to solicit the coming of the kingdom. Uh, so ironically, the church uh, understands itself as standing in for the kingdom, but in fact, if it is dwelling, it is standing in the place of the kingdom, thereby blocking rather than welcoming the kingdom's arrival. Um, yeah, that's probably my first stab at it. I can say more about the sort of biblical background to that um, or more about Agamben, what Agamben does with that. Well, I'm interested in both cases as I'm hearing the two of you side by side, I'm realizing that one of the, you know, one of the big things at stake for both of your work has to do with, with temporality, with ephemeralness and with a sense that the gospel is, uh, has something to do with our relationship to time and that something about our normative relationship to time is, uh, is contradictory to gospel notions of time. But it, I feel like it's more normal for people to associate time and God with eternal time or steadfast time or a kind of, a kind of long-term time. So what do you guys think about that? <laughs> um, how does the ephemeral fit into a kind of preconceived sense that stability, permanence, steadfast right. are the divine virtues as opposed to the ephemeral momentary? Well, let me, let me take a quick stab at that. I think that one of the, the most important things to do is to make a sharp distinction between eternity and perpetuity. Um, and I think this is why, why actually eternity and ephemeral architecture line up. The moment is the place where the eternal can break through Whereas most people think of the eternal as simply the perduring, endless march of time. Um, and the church, if it's taking up that stance, is actually, I would say, opposed to eternity. But I'm curious how Matt would uh, respond. To and, oh, and, and opposed to both the moment and eternity. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I often wonder if maybe like the key word here is momentariness, um, because it is really about, you know, focusing on, on, on where we are in a kind of here and now, um, and that the ephemeral allows us to intervene in a moment, um, and that the momentariness is is not necessarily bound to a particular time frame, right? That it, that it allows us to to think episodically. Um, I, you know, the the temporary structures that I work with are actually really confound ideas about what is permanent and and what is enduring and what is not enduring. Because you know, the structures that I, I work with stand for a day or two, and sometimes even only for hours, and. And yet, um, on a level they endure, one of the things that I found out in the course of doing my research is that these crazy structures and the shapes of mountains and temples that get built for festivals are actually made from these parts that get recycled over and over and over again. And so the ephemeral ends up actually being enduring in a very meaningful sort of way. Um, and meaningful, in, and I mean that in a kind of structural way, right? Like they're bones, they're very structured. The system itself um, repeats, it endures. And so I, I think there's something very kind of religious about 
about that, right? What seems momentary and fugitive is actually quite long-lasting and enduring. And, and what seems to be long-lasting and enduring may end up actually being, it, it may actually just be for a moment, for a time. Um, and, and so I think structures like these uh, get us to really think uh, more critically about what we mean when we talk about something that is durable or not durable, an experience that is lasting or not lasting. It, it shifts our, 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 our sense of how we talk and think about time. So you think, or, or maybe then, what should we say about buildings that are intended to endure? Um, does, does it mean if we build something that we intend to be characterized by stability, is that, is that categorically opposed to the kind of temporality that you're talking about, Charlie? Um, what do we think about that? And, and, and if, you're, if, we're, if the gospel or the kingdom is seeking a temporality that is uh, a kind of both an instant and an eternity, I mean, how is, how is that supposed to be? I mean, is it endlessly iterative? Must it be endlessly iterative? What do we think about buildings that are, you know, we've built buildings. What do we think about that? What do you think about that, Charlie? Oh, I'm going first? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I was gonna, ho I hope Matt was gonna answer the question <laughs> about buildings. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't and I'm thinking know. of it in part because this essay that you, that is really yeah. foundational for, for this thinking for us, describes an experience of being pretty acutely repelled by a building. Uh, yes, right. So the, <laughs> the experience Rita's referring to is an Easter service in Jerusalem uh, in which I had what can only be described as a kind of existential allergy attack to being in church. And I, I, I wanted to run, but I forced myself to walk out of the church um, and instead kind of took refuge in, in, the, in the courtyard. Um, I don't know if the there there needs to be an opposition between temple and tent, or whether that's actually some kind of dialectical tension. I don't know the answer to that. Um, Agamben seems, in most of his writings, to suggest that it is a kind of antagonism. That as soon as you build a temple, you have essentially betrayed your vocation as a sojourner. You've betrayed your vocation as one who dwells in tents. And you know, in the Christian story, that idea of tents goes all the way back to the Hebrew Bible's tabernacle, all the way up to the idea that Christ, uh, the word made flesh, um, uh, tabernacled or dwelled in a tent among us, and the way that the apostles describe how Christians are supposed to behave in the world. So what's at stake is the whole arc of the Christian story from um, the tabernacle to the apostolic age. Um, so I myself, I'm not sure. I, I really like buildings that are meant to endure. I'm actually quite frustrated by how crappy buildings are now and that they seem to just be like um, disposable disposable uh, items, um, but not, not intentionally disposable in the way that Matt's work is highlighting, but just made of such shoddy materials. Garbage. They're just garbage. Yeah. Um, and, and so I feel a certain power and um, comfort and orientation in enduring buildings. But the provocation is that that might not be what the gospel is about. The gospel might be about something quite different. Yeah. I, permanence is like, it, it, 
it's a really kind of strange architectural concern. Like it's one of the original architectural concerns. Um, one of the only classical texts to come down to us as 21st century people comes from ancient Rome, Vitruvius. And you know, one of, one of the issues that he prioritizes is fermitas, um, firmness, right, durability. And it's actually associated with dwelling. Like one of the, the first building types that he is concerned with in, in this text is like the house. Um, and, and there's something um, not scandalous, but you know something that seems to just go against the very nature of architecture by by asking for a building that that is not permanent. We we have such a hard time divorcing ourselves from this idea of permanence in architecture because it's so historically conditioned within our our profession and our practice and in the way that um, the popular imagination conceives of architecture. Right, architecture has to stand up. It has to it has to last supposedly, and so to to want something ephemeral seems to to go against that very deeply ingrained historical idea. Yeah, I mean, there's something, I don't know, I, I like the, um, I wasn't going to say anything directly about that, but the, the, this, the back and forth between tent and temple to just say that, um, backing up to that briefly, that the, the gospel may well be something that calls for a challenge to our norms. That seems, that seems fair yeah. to say. Um, and so in this way as well, but I also have this question about whether the gospel is supposed to become something that is universally practiced and experienced across all categories of our life together, or is it supposed to constantly remain a kind of energizing sign so that then the dialectic comes into play of, I mean, and the gospel takes place in the temple. And although Jesus has episodes of frustration and fury with the temple, um, the apostles, certainly in the book of Acts, it says that they spent lots of time in the temple. It was not fundamentally the mission to destroy the temple and replace it with something else, right. so much as it is to not become sort of frozen by it or something like that. Um, but what were you going to say? You were going to say something. I was going to pick up on something Matt said because he cited this, you know, ancient Roman text oh, yeah. about architecture, and I think that's interesting because um, I think it's the Emperor Hadrian who coins the idea of you know eternal Rome. Um, and the, the idea of Rome's eternity there is hovering between the idea of it being a perduring empire that will never end, or whether it's a sort of idea that even when the empire fades, the idea of Rome will endure and will inspire presumably other empires. In either case, what we have is an empire that was projecting a view of its architecture to support its understanding of itself as eternal. Yeah. Um, and it, and and so in that regard, I think the and we know the gospel decidedly sets itself up against Roman Empire, and I think more generally empire. Uh, so how does the tent or the tabernacle serve as a kind of insurgent sign to pick up your language, insurgent sign um, amidst um, an empire so concerned? With its um, with its perdurance, that it will crush, um, well, eventually will crush Judea and the temple uh, un under its wheels to make its point that we're here to last. Meredith, what are you thinking? Well, I was just thinking as we're sort of talking about durability. I'm just thinking about how the actual structure that we're building has begun to take form and how it's 
honestly, for me, it feels much more permanent than the thing that we had originally started talking about. Like, I'm actually not really sure. We've been calling it a tent, but I'm not really sure where it falls in these categories of tent and temple. And I think, I mean, I think it's its own thing that's like not quite one or the other, but I'm just curious what you all think about um, how it still sort of disrupts our expectations around permanence and, you know, what is it challenging um, while still sort of being a more permanent structure? Matt, I think you should take that. Rita, you know, this was one of like the the best conversations we had. It was a while back and I was like explaining to you the the weird status of these temporary structures that got built for festivals. Like in, in 17th and 18th century France, no one really knows what these structures are. Like the you look at dictionaries and architectural treatises from the Enlightenment and no one is really sure what these ephemeral structures that get built for festivals constitute. Like, are they sculpture? Are they theatrical sets? Um, a couple of dictionaries even go as far as to say that ephemeral structures constitute like something they call fake architecture, right? That they're not really buildings. And the, that distinction is made both uh, based on like d the question of durability, right? They don't stand up for a long time, um, but also their material dimensions or plaster and canvas. And so these things fall apart. And so architecture as a, as a discipline has always really struggled with like precisely what these ephemeral things are. Like I think tent for us is like a shorthand for something much more complicated, right? Like tent for us has been become shorthand for like not inherited worship space that doesn't come with a lot of weird historical or political baggage that allows us to experiment liturgically in a kind of new way that meets like our our evolving needs as Christians. Like that, you know, like I and I think that it, it falls across and cracks in, in really interesting ways, both architecturally and spiritually. It would be all one word in German, you know. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think that's that's right, that tent is covering a whole range of meetings. What, one thing that occurs to me is the way in which thinking about uh, Christian community gathering around tents brings us back to the very roots of the of Christianity. So it's 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 mm -hmm. not a it's not a, a modish or fashionable idea right now, or if it is, it's one that, as I said, it's kind of like back to the future. You have to go back to the past to discern the future. The, the, fe the feature of texts that, I'm um, sorry, the feature of tense that um, I was thinking about when Matt was speaking was um, their movability, right? They are, you're supposed to be able to collapse them and move them. And, uh, you know, another part of my life, I spent a lot of time reading about um, nomadic, um, nomadic peoples in, uh, well, in Arabia, so the Bedouin. And re I've recently been reading about some really stunning tents that they uh, assemble regularly. Um, and these you know, enormous things, many, many, um, what's the word, um, essentially many components, uh, many domes. Um, so, you know, the world knows uh, about movable architecture uh, until recently, I think, certain peoples were very accomplished in it. But it also reminds me of something about the gospel, which is you, uh, that Christians were originally not called Christians. We know that the first name given to Christians were people of the way or people of the road. 
Um, and this is because Jesus announces himself as the road, the way, and also that in the gospel, all of these encounters with Jesus are said to happen in the road, on the way. So there's something I think that we've forgotten about th that fact, that I'm excited about the tent because it reminds us that we need to take this show on the road, so to speak. Um, I know that sounds a bit like a circus, and I know that that's, that's probably exactly what you're going for. Essentially, clerics are now carnies. Yeah. Uh, As it was in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's, that's funny, because that tacks us into another um, weird center of gravity for the tent, which is the feels like, I mean, again, Meredith, this is going back to the sort of origin story that when we thought about building something as an intervention for Christchurch worship space, we quickly realized that we would then have something we could set up elsewhere. And one branch of that had to do with a sense of just basic evangelism in, in the sense of not inviting people to come to you so much as bringing, trying to go to where people are but still having some level of hospitality to offer in that encounter. Okay, that's that's fine. But we also thought a lot about the way in which if you construct something for a worship space in a sanctuary and then take it out of there, it both is of and is that sanctuary and also is some kind of space that's not quite that. So from very early on, we've had this idea of, of using the tent as a space for theater, for, um, for literal performance. <laughs> very close to the carnival idea, in fact. <laughs> um, but that's interesting because it then, that is, you know, on some level, a lot of that's a topic for another day, but the question of uh, what is the church performing or what is yeah. the, um, yeah. what, what counts as sacred performance versus non-sacred performance, these are all, it just feels like there's a number of things that get, that get turned up by being on the move in some way. Absolutely. I was just going to, I was going to ask you all a question, which is to what degree have you thought about this um, tent in light of the kind of um, American tent revivals or frontier Christianity, which is a, which is, seems to be a very different aesthetic than what you're going for, but it's part of the Christian uh, return to tents is the spread of Christianity, especially westward. Um, and the, that kind of romantic idea of the, the clergy on horseback, uh, but, but uh, you know, setting up shop and converting souls to heaven. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the tent uh, tradition that you want to claim, but maybe it is. No, I mean, totally it is. I mean, two parts of it. One, the revival tradition. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty hot. Like that's, that's <laughs> I mean, it's got, it's not always theologically where I would land, but the idea of saying, hey, it's another kind of, it's tent as reminder again, yeah. to be like, hey, you're supposed to feel something, you're supposed to come together, you're supposed to realize that church is outdoors and indoors and is and is on the move, like all these things, and that is supposed to radically re-energize your heart right. for the whole project. Mm -hmm. Fine, I'm totally happy to be in that line. And um, Trisha, uh, it's Hersey, right? Is her last name? Hersey, yeah. Coming in the spring, the Nat Bishop, um, which we another topic entirely too, but she's coming to have a revival. I mean, she's explicitly working on that thread. Okay, the westward expansion thread, however, you remember when Matt in his beautiful sentence underneath the tent definition <laughs> talked about the desire to have some space from which to imagine that was not so saturated with 
its own historical presence that you just couldn't even, that you were sort of suffocated by it. But alas, it turns out there's no escaping it because the Christianity of Westward expansion, yeah. that is a dark, dark- Christianity of empire. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so the tent can be co-opted by empire. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's everything, it can be like anything. Yeah. <laughs> or capitalism, you know, either one. Either. Um, so that's, a, I mean, that's a good flag in a sense. There's, uh, yeah. But, you know, there's something about, I mean, in terms of like historical reference points, there's something about the tent that appeals to me that is like much, much older. And it goes back to an architectural mm -hmm. form uh, and a, a way of using space um, that like we don't particularly have um, in current church architecture or even in kind of, you know, recent history. So, you know, a lot of medieval cathedrals and churches have this like weird meeting space on their exteriors. Uh, it was called a Galilee and it was often a porch. Trinity has one. It's one of the few examples um, of, of that in an American church. It was called a Galilee because it was the space that mediated between the church and the outside world. And it was where, you know, much like Galilee, right, where the church went out to do its business and to, to meet the world. And it, I mean that like literally, like it was a space where business was transacted. It was a space where legal and ecclesiastical judgment were handed down. And, you know, this is also a time when the the space of the church, the nave, is, is used for performances. Like you go back to medieval pieces of, of art, like the play of Daniel, Ludus Daniela said, that was performed in the nave of Beauvais Cathedral. Like that, you know, and I think the tent seeks to reclaim both the function of the Galilee, right? The, the place of performance, of hospitality, of meeting the world. Um, but it also seeks to reclaim all of the kind of paraliturgical, I guess we could call it, activities that used to happen inside church buildings. Yeah. We just happen to be taking that outside. <laughs> How about the fact that tents are designed to follow the rhythms of the natural world? And that in a tent, you know, you, the reason why peoples have tents is they're following flocks that are following green, which is following water. Um, and so to be in a tent, to be in this, uh, to be in a tent in a nomadic context is to really submit yourself to the rhythms of the natural world. And I wonder how that relates to um, what you're trying to do with your tent. Yeah, I mean, that feels like a huge, a huge part of it. For us again it, this isn't this piece didn't end up exactly coming through in the design but matt i don't know if you remember this conversation but we've talked a lot about um what it means to celebrate the eucharist east facing mm -hmm. and how that has primarily uh in our context but you know been understood in the episcopal church it's been understood as associated with a liturgical practice and pattern with a certain kind of architecture but not super connected to the natural world east and so early on we were thinking we realized oh my gosh if we had for example if the roof of this tent had a sunrise and a sunset then we would have a way to constantly keep the worship space oriented east but not the east of the church but the actual actual east and that's a very that's a very simple point or i wish ben was here too to talk about the um you know the the theology of that that goes into making the sukkah at Sukkot, where you, the line is that you must be able to see the stars through the roof, and this sense of I think it's huge the sense of 
opening becoming porous enough yes. to the to the natural yeah. world that you that you can recall pretty constantly um that you're part of that natural world and that yeah the god that you are that you are encountering is not only in the natural world but like ever beyond and beyond i mean it's an, another obvious point but an easy mistake you can make even in the most exalted cathedral you can think that that's the ceiling whereas if you the ceiling is the sky, then you are put in mind of a kind of much larger movement, as well as being, and we've talked about this, Meredith, in our backyard, just living more, living in church, like having church outdoors in the backyard. Um, what does that tune your senses to? And what does that mean to listen to or submit to or be formed by or shaped by? Yeah, right. natural. That's a place of intense curiosity for me. Right. And I think that's also a thread that has seemed to really resonate with a lot of our students. Um, I think even folks who were a little skeptical about this project at first have <laughs> come around to it. Um, I feel like one of the big sort of like selling points for people is this idea of like being able to have a secret space that is also like outside. Um, and I think just like to tag back to the um, Western expansion question a little bit, like I feel like often when we talk about this like i i feel aware of the idea that like wilderness or like nature and humans as being separate like i think that binary is something worth challenging and i think particularly in this country like there's this understanding of like wilderness that erases a lot of violence against indigenous people and all of this um but with all of that said like i i do think there is something worth um reconnecting to in the sort of idea of like the natural like rhythm charlie as you put it um which we also have in our tradition like i think the daily office for me is something that um feels very connected to like noticing like what time of day it is and what does that what does that mean for the energy what does that mean for how you're relating to god or where you're seeing god um and i think like that's something that i see as a possibility here is sort of like sort of underscoring or like making that connection more visible now I'm thinking again about, I'm back to time again, and I'm thinking about how, um, you know, this question of a kind of instantaneous time uh, delivering you into something of eternity that is different from just like other ways that we experience time or imagine time, like the timeline or market time or something like this. And now I'm thinking about um, liturgical time, and because you've right, just found the way in which the daily office is supposed to be by calling it, you know, morning and evening, it's, it's, it orients the time of the day based on the natural world. So it's, you know, based on the actual rhythm of the day. So it's connecting liturgical time and actual, what, what, what do we want it? Worldly, natural, I don't know what for morning and evening kind of time. Connecting that kind of time, nature time and liturgical time is interesting. And I wonder, it, it, it's, maybe there's the place of my curiosity as we live into this structure and we live into it liturgically. I'm curious to know what it will, what it will show us about how liturgical time is influenced by being more open to natural mm. time, I might say. Um, mm. And I don't really have, that's just a, I'm just curious about that. So Rita, can I ask you a question then, like along these lines, like as the seasons change and as the days get shorter and shorter, <clears throat> Will will chaplaincy services, you know, like, will they move with sunrise and sunset? Like, that's Sunday night. Like, what, can you envision that being a thing that happens? 
Yeah, so this is, a, right, this is, this is the concrete expression. That's the liturgy brings us quickly into like actual, <laughs> actual temporality and problems of it. So one thing, again, that we're shifting, we're living into even this process has shifted. I think the original idea had really been to uh, set up the tent in a more, in a way more consistent mat with the structures that you study. So, okay, it's going to be up for the fall or we're going to take it to xyz place and we're going to do something with it and then we're going to take it back down that was before the kind of the pandemic meant that indoors is a problem for us for a long time and so then the tent itself that was part of the tent becoming more stable so it is it's almost like it's moved from something totally movable it can be moved but it feels more like something located in the garden um, so then another set of this set of questions comes in then um, previously, I think, you know, we just imagined setting it up when we wanted to. And if the weather was terrible, we just would reschedule or do something else, you know. Short answer is Meredith and I are both fairly interested to see, <laughs> to see what it will be like to celebrate liturgies in the rain and the snow. The dark we feel ready for pretty quickly. You know, there's lighting inside the, the triangles of the tent and, um, you know, who doesn't love a good tiki torch church service <laughs> so have some ways to light up the to deal with the the movement of the day with the, the altar will be facing east although there are no people there so it's not really like that that's weird in and of itself but yeah um yeah we're, we're hoping i think we're hoping to kind of manage being cold and sometimes and see what happens see what that does I don't know. What do you think we should do? Do you have any advice? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Matt Jin, by the way, we should also say is a consummate liturgist. Uh, <laughs> Matt is Thank a you. Pack and an amazing thurifer. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, among other places, worked at the, not worked like on staff, but kind of um, at the American Cathedral in Paris um, as one of the chief, chief liturgical leaders. So yeah, Matt, what do you think? What should we do? <laughs> I don't know. I would love to experiment with like really just going with like just for a day. I mean, what if you really leaned into the time and like, you know, okay, it's noon. We do noonday prayer. Like it's getting dark and we're going to bed. Like complimentary silence. Like to, to really see what would happen as an experiment to, to actually tie, um, you know, those liturgies and, and prayer with the cycle of the day. I wish Ben were here because obviously the Sabbath uh, observance is tied to sunset. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. other people do it, right? Right? They lash it their liturgical lives yeah. to the, uh, you know, to the, to, to the, you know, the, the sun. Meredith, you have your, so you, I'm sure you don't have it handy, but one of Meredith and my schemes that has yet to come to fruition, but may, is um, a liturgy that is that takes. Um, which is, I think it's around nine months to... Yeah, the God time thing. Yeah, exactly. We took the line, um, the line from the Psalms, you know, a thousand years uh, in your sight as, or as a watch in the night. And we tried to, we applied that conversion to see like, okay, could we have, at first we were like, what would, it, what would an hour of God's time on that calculus look like? And it's like 45 years or something. So we're like, okay, how about could we handle like one minute? Like a minute. <laughs> And like one minute is like nine months. And so we've been trying to figure out a super long liturgy, like uh, 
Is it John Cage has some? Yeah, yeah. The Oregon piece, yeah. The the tone is about to change. Like right. it either has or like it's tomorrow or something. Heads up, the tone's about to change. Yeah. Which is another way of playing with liturgical time, but not exactly tied to the natural world. Sorry, mm -hmm. side sidebar there. I'm I'm finding myself delighted by just Matt when you originally asked this question. I was thinking about okay, um, what if we just like move our service time to actually match with the sunset every day? Yeah. And I just, I'm finding myself like so delighted by like how Harvard students would respond to that just because of the like, I, I feel like in my experience, like with our students, like I feel like many of them are pretty attached to like having a consistent schedule and like being able to like do things like on time based on the way that we understand time in this culture. Um, and so I'm like, ooh, we could play with that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can mess with their temporality, Meredith. Exactly. Yeah. Although arguably people's temporalities are being fairly messed with now in terms of the current mm -hmm. experience of being a student at Harvard, people are in many different time zones True. having to calibrate right. to East Coast standard time, which means that everything is, yeah, people, there's a lot of different right. realities going on. Yeah. I don't know if, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I want to bring this in. I'm just yeah. curious. I, I wish I, I can't sh show it to, um, our audience, but when Rita was talking about uh, the Sukkot, the the the, um, the has to be able. You have to be able to see the stars from within the Sukkot. So it has to be porous to the world. Um, when I published this essay about uh, Agamben um, in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, they they have wonderful artists that they commissioned to do work, and I was curious to see what they were going to come up with, and they instead of a tent. What they did, uh, I'll show it to you too. This is the black and white version. It's actually beautiful in color, but it's a it's a <laughs> cathedral that is open to the sky, and that's the moon. Um, so it's actually and that's the Saturnine hero underneath. That's me, right there. <laughs> but that's that's what I like to think that that's me. Um, quite a. I saw a few mock-ups, and they had one where it was a a, a, a guy in a tent. Um, and so they were clearly trying to figure out how do we capture this like interstitial space uh, that's open but also and, and movable and temporary and this is what they landed on. So, You know Rita, in terms of, and this goes back to what Charlie mentioned earlier about this being referred to the way, um, process has been so important to this like whole design exercise. Like, I mean, I would I I I have full faith that the tent will be built and will go up will be great but like I I'll say that like even if it didn't I think that the process and this way this journey that we've been on has just been so productive like just from a spiritual and intellectual point for me because it it's really forced us to like confront just the just how stuck the church is in terms of its thinking about space and, you know, just in terms of reimagining possibilities, it has just been so useful. Like this, this really is, you know, a journey, uh, a process. And I, I don't know, I would just like to hear, I mean, from like you and Meredith about, about that, like where, you know, we're clearly not where we were nine months ago. It's like almost kind of amazing. <laughs> um, 
you know, what's happened. And so I'd just love to hear, you know, your reactions. It's funny you say that because one of the things I keep hearing myself when I have to describe this project to people, um, I have been using this term without even thinking about it, which is a way that it's, I keep saying for me, it's, it's a way to ask questions of the church. So that rather than just asking them discursively, it, it's, it's asking it with an object, with a, um, and a process and a, something we can actually touch and see and feel. So even if, as you say, even if it were not to come to full fruition, it has been a way to be, to be moving our thinking about, about the church and the structure. So I just, I hadn't thought of that until today. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I definitely also, like, I resonate with, with the sort of piece about, like, the embodiment of this process. Like, I think for me, like, it's been important, especially in the last couple of weeks when we're, like, actually in the construction process, like, to, to think about, I don't know, just, like, the tangible pieces of putting it all together in addition to the, all of the conversations that we've had sort of on the conceptual level. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's just, it's making me think about the potential for this structure to like be something that continues to be a question. To me, it doesn't feel like, oh, like, you know, the tent is like, the church is not where God is, or the church building is not where God is. So the tent is where God is. Like that doesn't feel like um, a fulfilling like answer to this question. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm just appreciating the sort of like the physicality of it and the the idea of like something that continues to be a question and invite like active conversation and active participation. Right, like not intended to be like, oh, hey, oh, I know, I know what will help the church stop being stuck is if everybody just built tents, right? Like, yeah. Exactly, no, no, no. exactly. It's more about, as you said, Matt, it's, and it's more about it looking, just constantly looking to, to find ways to, yeah, to, I don't know, to at least provoke the tensions. And I only ask this too, because I was just, I was thinking about, you know, again, how we're going to document all this and, and talk about our experience. But then I was also reading something by this art historian at Pittsburgh. His name is Kirk Savage. He like studies monuments. And he, as a provocation, threw out this idea, like, what if in Washington, D.C., there was a 10-year moratorium on permanent monuments on the mall? Like, if for the next decade, the only monuments that we could erect were temporary, were momentary. Like what kinds of conversations would we have to have, not just at a national level, but at the level of like neighborhoods and in our families and in our households about like our values and our history and how we're going to occupy space. Like what, what kind of conversation would we have to have if we knew that all of those monuments on the National Mall were going to have to be renewed in a short amount of time. Like, and I, I wonder if, what would happen if every parish had this conversation right, about their space? Like, not necessarily like, how would we build a tent? But, you know, what would we as a parish do? What would we as a Christian community do if suddenly, as well, many are now, finding ourselves driven out of our inherited permanent or durable homes, right? Like, how would that change our sense of liturgy, of time, of, of God, of each other, of community. And I, that seems so valuable, at least in, in terms of like the experiment we're doing. And maybe to just echo that, but also draw the point back to Charlie's essay, this kind of, um, well, yeah, maybe if, maybe if, if, what's the conversation every parish should have might be about how, in what way does my church building uh, point or not point to the gospel and why? And what are the pieces 
what pieces of the gospel is it pointing to or not? I mean, that, I think that's what I like so much about your essay is that it, it just, it asks the question about, well, what's, it, that's a, this is a way bigger topic, of course, but kind of the church's ability to understand its own mission or its own purpose or yeah. its own, uh, so that then you can ask the question, how well does the, does the vision match up with what we can create in response to it? That does feel like that would be valuable. Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded of the fact that one of the things that's embedded in Agamben's uh, small book that moved me the most is this observation. It's not original to him, but that Jesus um, preaches the coming of the kingdom, preaches the kingdom. It's Paul who preaches the church. Uh, the three instances of church on Jesus's mouth, two of them, they don't mean a building. They mean just a gathering of people. It has no religious connotation at all. It's just an assembly of people. And the third, where he says to Peter, you, you know, you're know, you the rock on which I'll build my church, is almost certainly a later interpolation. Jesus almost certainly never said that. Um, so Paul is the guy who imagines church. But did Paul imagine church as a building? That's one question. What's the relationship of a building to this thing he's imagining and, and build and well, he's creating community as church. What building is appropriate to that kind of community? But then the even more prior question, which I think you're prompting is, if you're in a building, you call yourself a church, how do you understand yourself as welcoming, soliciting, summoning this thing called the kingdom, which was really what Jesus was about? And if you don't have an answer to that, then you better find an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but architecture, this is funny because architecture offers the easy way out. One of the things that I teach in my medieval class, you know, the students come in and at, at the beginning of the semester, I ask them, what is a church? And most of them are like, a building. At the end of the semester, you know, we work through it all and I ask them on the final exam, what is a church? And those who have paid attention and done all the reading will go, oh, well, Matt, a church is an earthly manifestation of the heavenly Jerusalem. And, you know, it's like architecture offers a way out of this question that you're asking, Charlie, because like architecture just references other architecture, right? right. Like, it just, right. It, it's, a, it's the heavenly city, right? And, and right. we think of it in material terms as like a literal city. And, and I think this is why architecture is so challenging because it's, off, it's both the like problem and the solution. But it's, it's, all, it's so much about what you, how you understand what it's doing. I love that. If you said, um, it's why like the, the, you know, the word temple comes into play. And obviously the temple in the, in the Bible has a, a whole set of particular connotations. But you could say, for example, you could say, let us build a building, as many of the English cathedrals were built, not, for, not to house the church, but let us build a building to make an offering with our utmost artistry to the God of, of artistry. Okay, fine. That's great. Then we have a reason to build the building. We can all have yeah. fun. We can offer liturgies in it. We can, we can express devotion. We can, we can, ex yeah, we can express our relationship with God via the arts in the gorgeous spaces. That's okay, but that's not the same thing. That's not identical at all to something called the church. Um, okay, we're at the end of our time, uh, but I want to thank both of you so much for having time to talk today with yeah. our. Oh, sure. uh, Thank you. Vast audience of Chaplaincy Podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shout out to Aiden and his friend who are listening. Our audience really, of two. But really, thank you. I mean, it is, uh, it just was really fun to be able to talk about these things with both of you as we have throughout the course of this design process. Yeah. Um, but to be able to kind of share 
that process a little bit. Yeah. And Charlie, it was great to meet you. Like I, I never go over to that. I never went over to that part of Harvard. And I think the only interaction we had previous to this was like a, a polite like bow at Trinity a couple of years ago at like a lessons and carol service. And they did every day. <laughs> well, yeah, you beat me to it, Matt. I wanted to say thank you. It's been a pleasure to meet you um, and to learn about your work. And I also want to thank. Meredith and Rita, because what you guys have pulled together, I mean, I have to say, I was a little skeptical at first, too. <laughs> I'm a, uh, and I am a full convert. Um, and even this conversation, I feel like I've, I've dropped down several levels in my appreciation of what this thing is and might be. So kudos to you two. This is a, this, yeah. is, this is definitely what the chaplaincy should be about. Yeah. You hear that, students? <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of You Never Walk Alone, Voices from the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. This podcast is created, edited, and produced by myself and the Reverend Rita Powell. Our theme song was written and produced by Aidan Stoddard. If you'd like to learn more about the chaplaincy, who we are, and what we do, you can head to our website, harvardepiscopalians.org, or follow us on Instagram at harvardepiscopalians. This podcast is one of many ministries that is made possible by the generous support of our community and extended network of alums. If you'd like to support us, you can head to harvardepiscopalians.org slash contribute. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on You Never Walk Alone.